Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We have a perfect segue there. Talking about retail sales, Greg Jarrett. Uh, we have Angie Solanke joining us, National Director of Retail for U.S. Uh, Colliers. Uh, Angie, thanks so much for joining us here. As Greg was just mentioning, really strong retail sales coming out this morning. You know, what do you make of it? Because again, across the board, there was con some concern about the consumer, but some really strong numbers this morning. Yeah, we're actually quite surprised and also excited. I mean, we're forecasting for year end somewhere around 6% increase uh, in holiday sales. And we just feel that people are still looking to get back into the stores. Foot traffic is back. We saw about 83 to 89% increase in foot traffic, whether it was department stores, apparel stores, or beauty. So people are getting ready for the holidays. Is there going to be enough stuff for them to buy? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm already having visions of walking into the Toys R Us and seeing the shelves empty, although I don't know if I'll be walking into a Toys R yeah, Us. Yeah, why are you walking into a Toys R Us for Steve? <laughs> There I had a daughter. There, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Find a different store. But, um, yeah, there aren't any more left uh, in terms of physical stores. However, uh, we do still have those same concerns. So, you know, holiday shopping, although it is uh, starting early, we definitely think the reason why is because shoppers are a bit worried that the supply chain may steal the holidays away from them. So there's going to be potentially less merchandise. Orders may not arrive on time. So there is, the, you know, those concerns still do exist. Um, so we'll probably see an early shopping spree, and that's going to actually, I think, help, although um, retailers hopefully are well-prepared for this. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, because we don't hear from the retail companies in terms of earnings for a couple more weeks here. I mean, what are the retailers saying about their inventories, about their ability uh, to get product when it's needed? Because, boy, we're hearing it from so many others that they're, Real backups at the ports, for example, there's lack of, lack of truck drivers, the trains are backed up, the containers, everywhere you look, it seems to really be uh, a, a big issue. Yeah, it's a bit of a mis, uh, mismatch. And what I mean by that is possibly what is occurring right now. Some retailers are receiving shipments that were prior season. So now, now they're conflicted with, hold on a second, I don't even have my holiday shipment. Now <laughs> I have my prior season merchandise. How am I going to put that into the stores? Do I need to discount that? So the pressure that is being pushed onto retailers is just, it's just all over the map. And I, I feel for them because it's a big struggle. Um, not only are they struggling with, you know, the merchandise coming in on time or over merchandise, meaning that they probably have either received multiple orders two or three times what they they plan for so now they may have too much merchandise during the holiday season and will that extend their um holiday potential sales into january and february of 2022 by the way do you think uh, we saw savings rates jump during the pandemic and yep. they've come back down stabilized a couple percentage points above the historical average do consumers spend down back to you know, um, the norm? Uh, no, we're actually going to see an increase in spend uh, based on some surveys we've been reading. We actually see that consumers are going to spend either a little bit more compared to prior year, um, but 
probably roughly around, you know, about six to $700 on the average spend for gifts during this holiday season. I think just people are still really in the mood to celebrate. You know, the, the mask mandates are relaxing quite a bit, especially in our more you know, dense urban cities. Uh, so we will definitely see a bit more spend occur this year. And then we'll start to see hopefully some softening um, in next year with the with the savings and so forth. Angie, talk to us about real estate, retail real estate. I'm here on Lexington Avenue between 58th and 59th Street. Um, all of the retail space, with the exception of one very small Swiss chocolate store, remain empty. Are what are we thinking about? What are the retailers saying about, you know, getting back into the physical stores? No, there are definitely retailers are very excited. It's actually been a very busy year. I have to say within our organization at Collier's, we've just been, the transactions are speeding up. I think what we're seeing is the following. Right now, 55 million square feet of retail has been absorbed across the U.S. year to date. And there's another 50 million square feet about uh, that is under construction. So we are seeing momentum. There's movement from um, other markets, global markets, where retailers are coming into uh, our, into the U.S. But what we're seeing is a very strategic approach. So they're really taking the time to say, okay, if we're going to expand, where should we expand first? So what I mean by that is, of course, a lot of people left the city. And so when they left... Um, retailers follow. And so the retailers are saying, let's go into some of these suburban markets where we're seeing, you know, year over year uh, sales increases from our competitors. uh, And there's some great locations. Let's try to get in now. And then we'll start to look at or relook at some of our urban markets. But it's not going to, you know, there's still, it's still, you know, viable space. Please, you know, remember that retail is not going away and the physical footprint is definitely not going away. I wonder if anybody wants to move back to Midtown. <laughs> I hope so. Our stores are empty, right? Paul, is it still pretty empty around the uh, Bloomberg office on 731? Yeah, West? but the tourists are slowly coming back. I was Again, I was out in the city having dinner last night, and uh, I noticed that. The tourists are starting to come back. So it's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> exactly. They're always welcome. Uh, of course, of course. Hey, uh, Angie, thanks so much for joining us. Angie Solanke, their National Director of Retail for the U.S. over at Collier's, talking to us about what to expect this holiday season after we had some real bang-up numbers on the U.S. economy. Let's bring in A.J. Oden right now. He's an investment strategist at BNY Mellon Investor Solutions. And... Um, we're looking at another rally today after yesterday we had the biggest gains, I believe, since March. What's driving us higher in the face of inflation concerns, supply chain issues, labor shortages? Well, thanks for having me. That's a great question. And I think a lot of it has to do with we're chipping away slowly at that wall of worry that we saw in September. September was sort of everything sort of came together in this perfect storm. And we saw the debt ceiling issue sort of added to that persistent inflation question. And then the news out of China about the potential for real estate, um, a potential more contagion issue, but obviously became more contained. And so all of that created a lot of volatility in October. And now, obviously, I mean, in September, but obviously now we've chipped away a little bit. The debt ceiling issue pushed off until December. And although supply chain issues haven't been resolved, the labor market numbers that we're getting being a little bit stronger, moving from 5.2% down to 4.8%. We, I think the market is digesting the fact that 
although we're still going to have some persistent inflation, supply chains are going to take a little bit time to normalize, that markets are still supportive of rich assets. And inflation is clearly here. That's why you're seeing fixed income sell off. But where, where investors are going is to where they can get some sense of inflation protection. That's, I guess, why you're also seeing movement in the crypto market as well. So clearly the quality names, the, the ones that have pricing power are going to have staying power and the ability to ride out some of this inflationary turbulence that we're going to see for the next few months. And I think that's why you're seeing the Dow outperforming the rest of the major indices. So, AJ, do I, do I stick with that rotational trade? You know, a lot of folks made back – Boy, September of last year, really, arguably, uh, into the more cyclical names, maybe the banks, the energy names. Do I stick with that or do I try to, again, take a look at the quality top line growth stories, whether it's tech or healthcare? Or how do I think about that? I, th- I think it's going to be a little bit of both. You want some income, right? You want dividend um, yield as well as you want those quality names. Um, we're going to see turbulence overall, but it seems like this is reopened 3.0 in a sense, right? We keep coming back to you you know we're reopening the economy then there seems like we pull back a bit but even seeing the news about uh, international travel restrictions being lifted for vaccinated um consumers that's 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 all positive news and and it seems like this time hopefully that we're gonna we're gonna be staying in that reopen trend so to your point i think it's going to be a little bit of both it's going to be income quality with those with pricing power but also reach as well we like those um, going going forward as we, we, we navigate this inflationary pressure. Um, what about property here, I wonder? You like REITs. Um, do you buy real estate, even even in this inflated market? Uh, you think, so you're saying about the actual individual housing? Um, yeah. You know, I think, I, I think prices, prices are a bit high. Um, and so from, from an individual perspective, I mean, if I think about myself, I would probably – probably hold tight a bit. Um, and But, I mean, from a refinancing perspective, it seems like that's what a lot of consumers are doing, and it, it does make sense while rates are low, um, even though they are creeping up, creeping up a bit. Um, you do you do get the, the value. I mean, or, you know, housing prices, hopefully you'll hold the value. I mean, it, it, in a sense, that, that real asset, the ability to, to sort of, in a sense, it acts as, as an equity in, in, in keeping – Keeping to inflation trend, so I, I, I would caution it just because of prices, and, and hopefully, you know, when when things normalize a bit, maybe prices come back when it comes to individual housing. But from the REITs perspective, we do like the income um, and, and and its ability to sort of deal with the tapering and the potential for rate yeah. hikes that are coming in the future. Paul, Paul, it's not the best time to buy an individual home right now. <laughs> but conversely, <laughs> a great time to sell. Uh, AJ, we've, we had some good financials, uh, we had earnings results in the financials uh, this week, capped off here by Goldman Sachs today. What are you looking for uh, in this earnings period as we kind of get into the, the meat of it over the next couple of weeks? I mean, consumer spending is still important, right? I mean, we have to think about with this pandemic, everything sort of came to a standstill. And we've been looking for organic growth to take over and it to be it's that handoff or that bridge between fiscal and monetary policy to come over into really just the, the economy itself sort of standing on its own. And so continuing to see strong earnings numbers is important for us because we need to know that that baton handoff can happen. And that as we see tapering and potential for rate hikes down the future, that we won't see any sort of pullback in the economy. So I think to continue to see Stronger earnings numbers is going to be important overall. 
And the earnings that we've seen so far, you're impressed? I mean, you're happy with, the, for example, the financials we've seen? I, I think it, it showed diversification from the banks. I mean, uh, when we think about the banks and we think about uh, it usually a lot of it has to do with the yield curve, but their ability to do so in a low interest rate environment and still produce uh, is a positive for the market. So I, I think that strong financials uh, overall is, is definitely a positive, seeing as that we're still at you know a 0% Fed fund rate. All right, AJ, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, getting your thoughts here. AJ Odin, investment strategist for BNY Mellon Investor Solutions. So, Matt, not a good time to be a buyer of real estate, I think. <laughs> That's terribly unfortunate <laughs> in my case. Um, I'm, if, it's your, if it's your primary residence, I think there's not much you can do. And No. Yeah, but you're just not going to be. Headed, uh, I'm, this I'm headed home pretty soon. And <laughs> I feel like if I if I rent a place, I'm just going to be. I feel like I'm just giving money away. It hurts. Yeah, but me. I, you got to think that this market's not going to be this crazy for this long. But who knows? Um, so, but it's even a rental market in the city. It's gotten very tight uh, very quickly. But maybe yeah. on the burbs, it's a little bit better. Well, the buy the dipper seem to have uh, won the day again today. Uh, let's get a sense of maybe where we go from here as we get into the meat of this third quarter earnings season. We bring in uh, uh, a grizzled voice from uh, in the investment community, Christine Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. She's not grizzled. Well, I say grizzled because listen to this. They have $1.5 trillion in assets under management. So when Christina speaks, people listen. And we are so appreciative of having uh, Christina on our show uh, over time. Christina, again, it feels like... Just when people were starting to get a little worried, a little bit spooked about this market, the wall of worry and all those things that are out there, the past couple of days have kind of erased that a little bit. Well, certainly, but I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet. I would expect continued volatility. What we learned from the FOMC minutes is that the Fed is full speed ahead and likely to announce and begin tapering in November. I think that will contribute to volatility, as will uh, the continuation of earnings season. Not so much, I think, for any negative surprises. Um, certainly we'll get a few of those, but I think it's more about the guidance for the future and issues like supply chain disruptions. So what about um, inflation? Is the Fed moving, you think, quick enough to keep this under control? Well, um, Hopefully it is. I think so, just because uh, I'm of the camp that, that most of the inflation we're seeing is relatively transitory. Now, keep in mind that transitory doesn't mean that it goes away in a month or two. Um, in fact, there are some, some dictionaries that would define transitory as not permanent. But I do think we're likely to see elevated prices, uh, higher inflation for uh, the coming months, and that it may not, uh, may not moderate until the middle of next year. So we have to, to buckle our seatbelts and expect that to be problematic and that some of the headlines could be scary. But this really shouldn't impact long-term investors. So, uh, Christina, we had a lot of the uh, big banks report uh, results uh, this week, capped by some, just some eye-popping numbers out of Goldman Sachs today. What did you take from the financials and, and what we saw this week? Well, I certainly expected financials to be a highlight of earnings, right? That um, there are certainly far more tailwinds than headwinds for the financial space. So this isn't surprising. I just don't want us to be lulled into a false sense of security because uh, some, uh, some sectors, some industries are not going to fare as well in this environment as financials have. 
So which ones are are you most concerned about? Well, I think certainly the lower margin industries, um, um, transportation, general retail, um, autos, um, those that are certainly being um, impacted by supply chain disruptions. I think that's where we're going to see some of the pain uh, this, this earnings season. And again, though, I don't think it should deter investors. I think we just need to be prepared for this. Yeah, I'm looking at my map go function on the Bloomberg terminal, and, and I like to look at you know the uh, the number of ships, cargo ships that are outside Los Angeles or Savannah or New York and some of the big U.S. ports. It ain't getting any better out there, and I, I'm kind of concerned over the next couple of weeks when we hear from consumer products companies, technology companies, industrial companies that we're going to hear a lot about supply chain issues. It just feels like it's going to be a longer term issue that perhaps. The market's not fully discounting. How do you think about that? Well, I think the market is certainly starting to discount it. Um, this is very understandable. We're coming out of this incredible economic disruption in the pandemic. Um, so it, it makes sense that we're experiencing all these issues, and it makes sense that it will take some time for them to be worked out. Um, Having uh, so, having said all that, I, I, I would expect, uh, especially not only companies uh, in, in those areas to talk about difficulties thus far, but to give guidance for the fourth quarter. Um, quite frankly, this situation has gotten worse in the last couple of weeks, so it's it's more going to be about um, uh, next quarter's earnings and and the impact there. So I think guidance is absolutely critical. Uh, to the extent that companies have visibility. I was going to say, don't you think visibility is is lacking right now? Um, certainly some have greater visibility than others. Uh, I think as think companies have have a some companies at least have a better sense for example of of uh, semiconductor uh, supplies and and how that situation is versus what we're seeing in, in, in other uh, areas in terms of supply chain disruptions. But yes, um, in general, visibility is going to be a challenge. Do you think earnings have come down enough to reflect some of these margin pressures that we might see in Christina? Or do you think there's maybe some risk to this market from, from, from earnings? I certainly think that that earnings um, are are going to be negatively impacted, and I think it, it doesn't mean that we're going to see anything terrible. Um, but certainly for those companies with the narrower margins, it's going to have a significant impact. But again, it's a relatively short-term problem in the grand scheme of things. It seems like a long-term problem right now because it could last several quarters. Um, but um, for those with a long time horizon, these are the kinds of issues that could present buying opportunities if they're reflected in stock prices. Just want to quickly get your take on rates. We've seen uh, the 10-year climb back up to 160, basically right now, 157.55. Where do you see rates going? So uh, I think that the, the, the movement is going to be higher, but I don't think that it's going to be a smooth move, and there are certainly going to be um, headlines, <clears throat> events, data releases uh, that can send the yield lower temporarily. Um, but in my mind, we're going to be closer to, to 2% than 1% when we finish this year, and I think we're going to be higher than where we are today. So, it, it, and again, just following up on that, Christine, um, just wondering about the Fed. Um, do you expect this tapering and this eventual rate increase 
policy that we're likely to see over the next six to 12 months, do you expect this to be, I guess, well received by the market or rationally received by the market? I think it will. Let's keep in mind that the, the stock market has become so incredibly dependent upon accommodative monetary policy. And so this is a situation in which um, the, the market is going to welcome um, a, a very slow normalization process. And so I think, in particular, uh, things like when Jay Powell says that there has been a, a very conscious uncoupling of tapering from rate hikes, I think that's a very well received because right now markets have come to accept the fact that we're going to see tapering start soon. Um, they're more wary about rate hikes and where that might take us. So I, I think that this this approach uh, is is and will be well received by markets. All right, thanks so much for joining us, Christina. Always great to get your insight, Christina Hooper, their chief global market strategist. Over at Invesco, as Paul said, they have about $1.5 trillion of assets under management out of Atlanta. That does it for this Friday. This is Bloomberg. Now let's get to Mark Noble. He's the executive VP of ETF strategy at Horizons ETFs. And we want to talk about the um, supply chain issues, the semiconductor industry, how that's reshaping supply chains. Um, Mark, what do you think about where we stand right now? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel here? Uh, I I don't think so. Um, I actually think that, you know, right now the semiconductor issue with supply chains and the fact that semiconductors have become probably the most highly politicized industry globally means we're probably looking at the 22, 22, 23 uh, for us to get some sort of supply chain movement where these can get to market. Um, I'm very much viewing what's happening with the semiconductors market to be similar to what we saw in the 1973 oil shock, uh, where the pandemic has really shown the fragility of the supply chain where we've been so heavily reliant on Asian manufacturing. The, the vast majority of semiconductor components are manufactured in Asia, the ma- majority of IP is in North America, but not manufactured there. And it's resulted in a situation where you know, the United States and China are very much at odds to get control of the semiconductor, which has really come to the fore as the key technology used for all consumer electronics, from everything from you know, smart TVs and artificial intelligence to, of course, what we've seen with automobiles. So it is almost at a crisis situation, and you know, no amount of money being thrown at it is probably going to allow us to have uh, reshoring of this commodity, and I'm very much viewing it as a commodity, uh, until there's you know more excess manufacturing capacity, which will take a couple years to build. Mark, I don't even know how we got here. I don't even have cocktail uh, hour kind of knowledge of this topic. How did we get here? Well, the way that we got here was that for the last 40 years, uh, globalization has occurred where supply chain has all been focused on just-in-time delivery of technology. And so the United States uh, benefit in technology has really come from the IP, which is developing the technology. You know, you have Silicon Valley providing sort of the brain trust for development of technology, but to actually build components, you have components built all around the world. So for example, if I'm doing etching on semiconductors, that's likely happening through ASML in, in Netherlands, but if I'm actually building the key components that go into, you know, graphics processing units, which are the 
major driver of things like artificial intelligence, even uh, automobiles now, that's being done in Taiwan. And then I have shipping coming through China. And I have, you know, Japan and Korea also offering different pieces. And all these, these uh, gr- um, supply chain components would come together to create this just-in-time manufacturing. When you have any disruption of the supply chain, which we've seen with the pandemic, uh, it results in a breakdown of any one of these components. You end up with complete gridlock in getting these semiconductors to market. But that's only one piece of it. The more important piece is that data is really, you know, the idea of data, if we talk about where the economy is going for the next two decades, really what we're moving forward to is a digital economy. And a digital economy requires semiconductors to move data. I very much view data as the new oil. So semiconductors are the new engine of that data. And if you want to be, you know, the lead economies in the next couple of decades, you need to have exposure to semiconductors. And what's happened is China, for example, realized that they have a huge vulnerability relative to the rest of the world in that they use semiconductors for all of their technology development, but they don't actually manufacture them. So they've been hoarding semiconductors. They've been taking, you know, uh, IP and people from Taiwan to come work there. And the United States has now doubled down, uh, even introduced an act in 2020 called the, uh, you know, uh, Chips in America Act, where they're also trying to double down to control the supply. So really for your listeners, it's almost viewing it like the oil shock in the 1970s again, where the safety and security of these massive global economies is focused on controlling supply of semiconductors the way that they were focused on controlling supply of oil in the 1970s, 80s, and 1990s. So um, what's an investor to do in this situation? I mean, what's the best way to hedge against these problems? Well, it's interesting. You know, you would think this would create volatility in the space, but it actually creates a, an interesting opportunity because, one, there's only excess capacity being built and demand increasing. So we're, we expect the semiconductor market to probably be about a trillion dollar market uh, by 2030. It's roughly a $500 billion market now. And the one thing that's interesting in this market that doesn't exist with other technology markets is that there's going to be, I believe, hundreds of billions of dollars spent by governments globally to support and underpin development and manufacturing in semiconductors. So your baseline uh, revenue of these companies through subsidies is very well controlled, even if you end up with volatility. So as a long-term buy-and-hold investment, uh, it's probably extremely attractive uh, simply because demand is not going away. And you've got massive public investment going into this like you would with an infrastructure investment. So even if you end up in an inflationary market, you have that being supported with money coming in from the public. And then long term, semiconductors are only going to be more widely used in all facets of our life, which means long term demand does not decline. So this is definitely a long term investment play that has a lot of opportunity, even if it becomes a political powder keg uh, at certain periods uh, during the supply chain disruption. All right, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. I certainly have a better understanding here, but I'm disappointed that we can't just throw money at the problem. That's usually my strategy there. Mark Noble, Executive VP of ETF Strategy at Horizon ETFs. Why can't you just throw money and build a more a new fab plant? But apparently that takes a while, I guess. It takes there. a while. Yeah. It takes some time to do that. And um, it, unfortunately, it looks like companies like TSMC are willing to throw more money at it than companies like Intel. Yeah, interesting. But we got to get some of that back on short, sounds like, as we talk to some of the experts like Mark. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.